Welcome, dear listeners, to episode 14 of the Jacobs podcast. This is a longer episode than what you're probably used to uh, by covering such a a huge topic like federalism, but I encourage you to uh, stay focused and have patience because I can guarantee that despite the gravity of covering something like this, um, it is well worth the listen. So thank you very much for tuning in and we hope you enjoy the podcast. Okay, well, welcome, dear listeners, to another edition of the Jacobs Podcast. On this episode, I'm very fortunate to be joined by our friend and founder of Wig Capital Management, Jordan Shopov. Jordan, welcome back to the podcast. G'day, Sean. Great to hear from you again. Excellent. Likewise. And then um, joining us again is William Witheridge, who's an economist who currently works at the OECD in Paris, but he's not based there, I understand, at the moment. He might be on holiday. Will, welcome back to the Jacobs podcast. Great to be back with you and Jordan. And yes, not in Paris at the moment, on a short trip away in Portugal. Oh, lovely. And um, how much longer do you actually have in Paris, Will? Uh, just a week and a half left for um, setting off to, to New York to start a PhD in economics, which is pretty exciting. Yeah, very exciting. So from Paris to New York, well, anyway, we'll cover that on another podcast. But look, gents, thanks so much for coming on today. Um, just a bit of admin for listeners. I do have a theme song that's coming, so stand by. It's in the works. And um, you'll notice now, um, some of your listeners too might notice that um, that the podcast is now on Spotify, which is great. And um, it's just this increasing outreach that we're getting is really good and um I really encourage everyone to um, be engaged on that platform and just spread the message as much as possible. So the topic for today's episode is the Australian Federation, and it came up in a previous episode of the Jacobs podcast, Could a Hawke, Keating or Howard Survive Today on Economic Reform and Commonwealth-State Relations in Australia? So I thought it would be really good to actually have a longer discussion on this really important issue. And it can be easy to forget the federation system shapes all our lives as Australian citizens and the role of our government and politicians. We'll explore some of the practical elements of this in our conversation. So by way of introduction, the Australian Federation is our system of government in Australia, the combination of Commonwealth, state and territory governments, their powers, processes and responsibilities and the relations between them. Um, so there's a bit of heavy lifting here, but um, we hope it's going to be a, an informed discussion. And I think if you're interested in Drake's new album, Scorpion, uh, you've come to the wrong place because we are, again, <laughs> a pretty tricky, trippy, some tricky substance here, but we hope it's going to be um, relatable. And we've got different perspectives, so we'll try unpack it um, in a way that's listenable um, and tolerable and absorbable for all of us. So... It actually combines this topic, um, politics, law and economics, and develop, it's developed from the founding of Australia, so our history and our constitution. So there's a lot of angles here. And we all come, and I think, Jordan, Will, you bring different perspectives to mind. But, Jordan, to kick off, what are the key features of the Australian Federation to you? Is there anything you think a lot of people may miss? Um I'll just take it from what you said, though, Sean, that Drake's new album's not going to form part of the theme song. Is that fair to rule that out? Is that? Yeah, look, we can, yeah. I think. I think um, I'll just have yeah, okay. to adopt a more humble, um, humbled theme. Well, I'll, I'll wait with bated breath. I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, key features of, the, of our federation. I think 
you know, going back to the last podcast we did, and, um, the thing I was focusing on was the Constitution. Obviously, it sets out to the rules of the political game, outlines the separation of powers, and it has certain levels of authority that the federal government can pass laws on. Um, but I think the thing that people may not know or kind of overlook is the fact that there is a strict delegation of, of powers at the federal level, um, but then at the state level, it's, it's actually unlimited. So the, the real um, home of sovereignty is actually at the state level rather than the federal level. And so I think people kind of presume that the hierarchy is the other way around, that the federal government has unlimited authority and the states are actually quite constrained. But it's really the other way around. The, the states are the locus of power and they delegate authority through the constitution to a federal government, which then has uh, responsibility for passing laws under, under certain powers. So I think it's important when, you, when we look at the role of federation and, and you know, the different options that might be out there for reform, we remember it, that sovereignty begins with the states and um, the federal government is, is almost secondary to that. So that's, that's one thing I think is that people, need to, people shouldn't forget. Yeah, good point. And um, Will, if you just want to jump in there, what are the sort of the key features to you? Is there anything you think a lot of people might miss out there when it comes to our system of federation? Well, I think one of the, the fundamental establishments of the Australian Federation was a, a free internal market within Australia in establishing this, uh, the federation between the, the former colonies and the states. This facilitated the free movement of goods and services and people within Australia and that this free internal trade and, and economic integration has been a, a huge benefit to uh, Australia over the more than a, more than a century since the, the founding of the country. So I think that's something which uh, can be easy to, to forget or, to, or take for granted. And another, another key feature which I think there is is, is the, the balance between the states in that they have um, you know, certain... Uh, as, as Jordan was saying, um, uh, responsibilities. But from a from a federal perspective, there's a, there's an, an equal weighting given between uh, between them in the way the the Commonwealth um, you know, deals with the states. And I think that's that's also something which is which is interesting and, and and might be forgotten. Yeah, sure. So there's some pretty interesting perspectives there. So Jordan, your point though was that. There's strict delegation, sorry, at the Commonwealth level, but then not at the state level, or people might get that perception the other way around. Yeah, so if you, um, I had a quick look today just out of curiosity because I was, I only remembered this point from studying constitutional law back at, back at uni. It was probably the only thing I remembered from my, from my law lectures. But yeah, well, actually, the, just um, quickly there, Jordan, I remember um, just doing this because Will's a resident economist here. Um, you know, when we ask for his, um, phone number he gives us an estimate but no I'm just <laughs> but um, I was like oh grief we need a lawyer on the show and then I just remembered oh that's your actual background is in is in the law so yeah look, I, yeah all I all I learned was to bill for six minute increments so I'll send you an invoice if that's what you're asking <laughs> well that, that wraps up the Jacob's podcast thank you everyone for <laughs> um so, so what was the question again? <laughs> oh, look, no, it's just the um, you're just recalling how um, strict delegations and how you remembered that or recalled it at the, the Commonwealth level and then not at the state level and how that perception gets mixed up. And then I think for some background for this, you were going over those and you just rediscovered that. Oh, yeah. So, um, yeah, like that was one point I thought that stuck out to me from studying constitutional law. And then I thought 
just to check that I, I was right in that point, I went and had a look at um, Victoria's constitution today and I, I didn't realise, but the original Victorian constitution was actually an act of the British Parliament and it was only in 1975, 1975 that it um, became an act of the Victorian Parliament. So that's a pretty amazing thing. Like, the Constitution wasn't actually, you know, an Australian legal document until the 1970s, despite Federation forming in the 1900s. So the... And then having a look at the Constitution quickly, the, um, it, it simply states that the Victorian Parliament has authority to pass any laws with respect to the state. And that's, that's incredibly broad. And um, in comparison with the, the, you know, the federal Constitution, where there's strict delegation of powers and... Um, yeah, the, the Commonwealth Government has authority to pass laws with respect to those powers, and it can't go beyond it. And, you know, the extent to which they do or don't is usually um, subject to interpretation by the Supreme Court, or, sorry, the High, the high Court. So, yeah, that's... I think that's... I always thought that was important, because I'd always... I think people would instinctively think that the, the sovereignty is really at the federal level, but I think the, the legal fabric shows that it's really... It's really the states that have ultimate authority. Um, yeah. Yeah, so that's a good point. And, I mean, I think there's a lot of examples like that where the legislation doesn't play catch-up, but things practically move on. You know, like you look back, you know, it's sort of 1975, OK, things became formalised, but, you know, Melbourne and Victoria and the gold rush, and you look towards the end of the 19th century and it was sort of thriving hub of commerce and it became a really cosmopolitan world city but it didn't sort of require that legislation to actually formalize things which is i think an interesting interesting point um historically and it ties into will what you were saying i think as well just on that point on history that i really you know uh, i think is a really valid one that um this goes right back to um you know uh, the 1880s the 1890s and then forming into federation and the constitution and i think it's just really interesting talking about the development of Victoria, just how the states developed differently and then what that negotiation would have looked like and how it took, um, you know, quite some time to put together. You know, I was reading a lot on Queensland history recently for something that I'm working on and um, it's quite interesting that, you know, there's no industrial pace. That was the big uh, key difference uh, between Victoria and New between uh, Queensland and the southern states. There's no industrial base like there was. It was very sort of an agrarian or frontier type economy and I think that would have just been a very you know you think back to these times the 1880s 1890s and forming a, a nation um, just the contrasting um, economies and the different interests that that would have been around so you know I think there's just a lot of legwork in the negotiation to to bring all these states together um, and or bring all the colonies together pardon me and then, Jordan, I just, this moves into the next point that you did mention in a previous episode in the role of constitutions and how they shape politics and policy outcomes, uh, but particularly the founding in the United States where I think that same complexity was apparent. Um, what do you think the lessons are there for Australia? Um, and I know you've been reading the Federalist Papers um, recently and trying to absorb them, but what are the lessons there? Any lessons for Australia? Uh well, Sean, I've, I've got a confession to make. I said I would read it in preparation for this, but I didn't get around to it. So we'll have oh, a discussion of what shame. I haven't read. <laughs> shame. We'll berate you publicly for but, not reading the Federalist Papers. Shame on yeah, you. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't do my homework. Yeah. yeah. But um, <laughs> I, I, I probably can still add um, a bit of colour to this, to this point about the US experience. And I think it's really important as well. I'm, I'm a big fan of 
US, or I have a huge interest in American history. Um, I, I probably understand the founding of the US better than the founding of Australia. So I'm going to have to defer to you on, on those more subtle points. But I think, you know, the, the US constitution is the oldest in the world. And I think it's, you know, the oldest living one. And, you know, I think um, when you're, we look at our system, we have to recognise that it is partly based on the American system as well as the British so um, understanding the foundation of the American Constitution, I think, is really important for understanding the reasons why our Constitution has certain features. And so just a bit of background history there, like the American Constitution wasn't ratified by the colonies until, I think, 1788. And before that, they actually had um, what was known as the Articles of Confederation, which was this sort of loose contractual agreement between the 13 colonies uh, that was kind of brought about by... Uh, the Revolutionary War in 1776. And the, the Articles of Confederation was much more um, limited in terms of the authority it gave to a rough federal government to essentially run the war. And that the experience with the Articles of Confederation, even though America did win the war, the experience was enough to um, show a lot of the American founders that something, uh, something better was needed. It wasn't, I mean, there was, you know, stories of like, Washington's army not being able to pay the soldiers and there was a lot of um, argy-bargy between some of the states about who was going to contribute money and uh, like the people in Virginia didn't trust the people in New York like there was already a north-south divide and so the level of the level of self self-interest between the colonies was uh, was almost to the detriment of the American experiment so a lot of the American founders decided we need uh, something more uh, more rigorous something which can actually centralise us to a greater extent, improve coordination, and also deal with things like what Will was talking about, the, the internal movement of goods and services. So, um, And in, in preparation for that, obviously the Constitution, the Constitution was drawn up, but then a series of essays was published by uh, three of the American founders, John Jay, um, James Madison and Alexander Hamilton, and their series of essays... Uh, in which defended the American Constitution are now regarded as some of the best pieces of political science ever written, and uh, it was Thomas Jefferson who said that, not not me. So <laughs> I think yeah. you know, understanding that was why I was so keen to read it. And I'm a bit annoyed I haven't got around to it, but I, the those essays are meant to grapple with the questions of why we have certain separations of power, and you know why um, there was a need to federalize, uh, to have a federation, and centralize more. Uh, things around foreign policy and military affairs. So I think the lesson here is that, just to sum it all up, the, the lesson is how do you get the balance between uh, decentralisation on the one hand, like the appropriate amount of competition between the states, but then on the other hand, the appropriate level of centralisation so that there's effective coordination of you know, um, matters which are of interest to all, all, the, all the states. Um, and you know, getting that balance right between uh, you know, tyranny and anarchy uh, I think is is a delicate balance, and as James Buchanan said, the the American founders are probably the closest the the people who got closest to getting that balance right so far. So I think that's the that's the important lesson to draw from the American experience. Yeah, great. And will um, I think that getting the balance right is not only important for just law and order, and you know to avoid I guess um, you know you go back to where it all began, but uh, uh, warfare and um, and squabbling and sectarianism and all those sorts of things. But, well, is there an angle here about, you know, goods and services, like Jordan picked up on your point about, um, you know, getting the balance right with goods and services and commerce and trade between states? Yes, so there, 
there is, and that's there's there's benefits that um, that uh, that single single market of the in the founding of Australia between the between the states in um, in helping to uh, the the whole nation to grow, and also in in uh, ensuring that there's uniform policies at the sort of border of Australia, and that being determined by the the Commonwealth government. So this is um, you know thinking about foreign trade that's that's harmonized at the the national level between the states um, another important point which I wanted to pick up on of which Jordan made about the the Constitution and Australian Federation establishing the High Court with the specific role of interpreting interpreting and adjudicating on constitutional matters but also the the High Court has a role in uh, legal disputes between states and that that is the that is the the body which which rules on that. So I think that's another interesting element of the of the Australian Federation. Yeah, and look, there's two points here. Actually, this sort of leads into our next item. But I um, just wanted to mention it's actually a good point to mention that I was watching the West Wing last night, and they had the um, had Bartlett's presidential debate, and he said. Um, you know, Florida didn't go to war. It was something to this effect, I'm butchering it, but, you know, Florida didn't go to war in Normandy, um, you know, like, and it, it's a it's a sort of valid point about what you're talking about uh, before, Jordan. There's a role for the federal government in the United States and there's certainly a role for the national government here, as you say, Will, when it comes to customs and, and border protection and things like that. But then also that point's a good one about regulating or dispute, um, you know, with commerce between states as well. And um, I think, you know, as much as we can get from the United States, our system of government here is actually quite eclectic, where we did draw some elements from the US, but not all of them. And, um, Will, you mentioned the High Court. And I think what was interesting recently is, I think we reminded this, it was, I think it's Anthony Kennedy, the Supreme Court Justice, who's retiring in the in the US. And um, you... When you know Supreme Court justices are nominated, they have to go through a very bruising, um, if they're controversial, bruising um, confirmation process. And I remember in Lazarus Rising, um, John Howard writing that when he commented to uh, to George W. Bush that um, high court judges, so the equivalent of, our, of the Supreme Court in the U.S., are completely an executive um, or federal government matter that they don't have to go through any parliamentary or any confirmation process whatsoever, uh, to which George W. Bush, uh, quote-unquote, expressed wistful envy. And I think that's an element of simplicity <laughs> in our system where we've, um, where we've um, adopted that, that element of simplicity. Yeah, one thing I think that is interesting in thinking about Australia versus the US is that, you know, in Australia, both the, the executive and the legislative are combined in, or, yeah. or closer in, in one body, so... We have the, you know, the, the the prime minister being a sitting member of, of parliament, and uh, members of the cabinet being also members of of the parliament, the senate, and that's that's very different to the U.S., where there is there is that separation between the directly elected president and the congress. So um, I think that's a, that's yeah. another interesting one where we're more moving towards a, a British, um, you know, the British influence on Australian. Uh, the Australian Federation and, and system of government um, in, in, in uh, differing from from the US. Yes, um, Sean, can I can I ask you a question just about because you understand the, the Australian history um, quite well, and I was curious, like, I what 
what aspects of the British system have, like the British federalism, have we adopted? I mean, uh, I think you know, people kind of forget that you know it's not it's not just England, it's Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland. Like they have a they have a federal system as well. Do you do you know sort of what features we've uh, uh, adopted from Britain? Can you think of any unique things we've adopted from them as well as from the Americans compared to yeah, look, the, compared yeah. to the Americans? Sorry. Well, yeah, look, one of the key things um, is actually what we haven't adopted. And I think one of the the key elements, then you look, and this ties into what Will was saying about the executive um, being sitting in on the legislature and having the second chamber. We don't have a House of Lords here, which I think is a really important distinction to make. Um, we, didn't, we didn't adapt that or... Um, adapt that system of government onto here. And, um, you know, this was actually being seriously debated in the 1850s. There was um, William Wentworth, and you might recall or you might have heard of this, this, this term, a bunyip aristocracy, um, where there was a, a very famous speech by Daniel Denny where he talked about, um, you know, how we wouldn't want to impose this landed gentry here. And then he said something really important. And he, he said that Australia was a, a, a place where you'd get reward for labour, where a just law no more recognises the supremacy of a class than it does the predominance of a creed. So I think that's a really critical... So it's well, well, I think it's a really good example of how of something we haven't taken from the UK but applied it here. I think there's a lot to do with the pragmatism about the utility that we've applied to our politics here and the practicality around that. Um, so, yeah, look, it was really debated heavily about the system of landed gentry here in the 1850s and it it wasn't picked up. Um, you know, while we have maintained a Senate, we do have, we don't have a, a system of a House of Lords where we have, um, you know, a privileged system. And I think, um, you know, that point that Will made before about, you know, if you guys might remember when Obama was president, he, you know, how you do have to get the executive invited into Congress. Um, he has to be formally invited in. Um, and then you might have remembered when Obama was speaking and he was interrupted. I think he was called a liar or someone shouted out. He's a Republican congressman from the floor. And it was sort of seen as this huge affront to democracy. And I just remember thinking, because it might have been 2011 or whenever it was, but I just remember thinking, gosh, like if that was, um, you know, it would be a relatively easy day out for an Australian <laughs> prime minister or a senior cabinet minister if they were, he or if they were called a liar on the floor of parliament. And I think that does, that is a, a positive element to our system um, where I do think we get a lot of, um, a lot of scrutiny in a way that, um, that we wouldn't if we had in any other type of system um, where it just exposes, again, the, the pragmatic elements uh, of, of our system having the executive sitting on the uh, legislature. Um, can I also ask, Will, will you, just given your experience in Europe at the moment, living in Paris and everything, like given, given all the issues that the EU has had, I know that there's been some talk that one way to solve it is for you know, countries to leave the EU, but how much serious discussion is there around you know, a, a federation of the European, you know, a, a federal government of Europe rather than like a tighter association than what there is in Brussels today? Is there much discussion? Well, that that's interesting because the uh, I didn't really appreciate the the role of the um, the European Union in um, in Europe until actually living there and in many ways the, the the European Union is a form of federation 
not between states, but between nations. And the, the simile, nations have delegated certain powers to the, uh, the European Union to be responsible for, such as external trade and, uh, uh, and certain regulations which are um, harmonised within the, the European Union. So, as you, as you picked up, there's a fierce debate about whether there's been too much integration and that's what's, um, that's what's causing a lot of the, the issues that are um, confronting the, the, the European Union now about whether there's a, not enough national sovereignty. And then on the other side, there's um, you know, a, a debate saying that there needs to be further integration and, and more delegation of certain powers or, or giving, you know, for example, more, um, more resources to a central European Union finance minister. Uh, and that that actually... Be, is um, is needed to overcome the uh, the challenges which um, the European Union is facing around um, certain countries having underperforming economies or or large uh, sovereign debt burdens. So that's a that's a fierce debate with um, with uh, many people on, on on taking different views and different models for what the future of the European Union could look like. So um, I think that's 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 quite an interesting. Um, Situation and tension at the moment, which will um, um, be, be is, is being negotiated at the moment between between leaders like uh, like Macron in, in France and, and Merkel in Germany. Yeah, and just to jump in here, I think there's that uh, it, there's an element of um, almost a, a passing. I think that a lot of people try and or that that's what they can interpret these things for. Um, you know, like. I've heard on a lot of different commentary out of the US where it talks about, you know, we do have a growing, there is a growing central centrality of, of government there because it's easier to get the executive to do things. Um, and that might be the way that we're headed here, but it does create this system where it's convenient, I think, politically to blame other tiers of government if things go wrong, but then also to just actually get things done and avoid log jams. So I think that, that delegation of powers and authority actually can be received the same time as while it might be seen as doing a good deed if you're in the political realm by transferring authority and power it, it can be it can backfire and can be poorly received too as, as buck passing and I think that sort of ties into the whole reason why this issue is you know will never go away in Australia because it just is a, such a spaghetti bowl you know whenever you look at a road or a hospital or you know malfunctions or deficiency deficiencies pardon me, in the education system, it sort of goes like, and uh, for listeners, I'm just pointing my fingers in different directions here, creating <laughs> <laughs> an X. Um, yeah, I do think there's that sort of frustration that that can cause about um, buck passing and when it comes to delegation and authority. Um, yeah, so I, I think that, um, again, it raises this question of balance. So, Will, like, what are your thoughts then? You talked about some of your practical observations there about Europe, but um, how do you actually balance these obligations? You know, you have to, you know, fight wars as a federal government. You have to uh, create rules around, um, you know, international trade and commerce. Um, there's all these things that a federal government has to do, but then also states want to actually um, conduct as well. So how do you find this this balance between... between um, Central authority and state authority. So this is a, uh, as you mentioned, there's these these two ideas of um, 
of, of centralization of uh, powers and decision making at a, at a national level and there being some uh, gains from that and this, from uh, greater harmonization across a nation and in on the the other side is is more the the benefits of diversity and flexibility at the state level and this is often known as uh, competitive federalism so the idea that uh, policy is is best uh, done at at something like the state level for certain uh, certain policy issues and that um, you know competition between the states in experimenting with different um, different policy settings and how that um, you know works or doesn't and making those sort of adjustments at the state level you know then those can be adopted by other states and the, the competition between them to um, you know, it, it make their economies grow and attract, be attractive places for people to live, that that'll lead to benefits as well. So really, the, there's a, it depends on the issue. So you know, thinking about uh, you know, national security, we, we want a, a, you know, a, a single um, Australian armed forces and um, you know, a single policy towards, uh, towards international trade. So there, there's these benefits of... They're these benefits of centralization or harmonization across the, the nation. There's other thing, examples that you can think about. The benefits of having you know, a single standard for railways within Australia. You know, that's just uh, enabling much more the, the free flow of, of um, goods and, and services and people within the country. And that it'd be, it'd be very inefficient to have trains having to stop at the border within Australia and then change to another, another train to, to be able to move uh, through the country. Similarly, uh, corporations' law and regulation is um, is another one which seems to be uh, better set at the at the national level, and that's purely because companies can be very mobile in moving, uh, you know, from one state to another within Australia. So it's better to have a harmonised uh, system of um, of regulation. Uh, then on the you know thinking about where there's more um, competition. And then benefits of diversity and flexibility that could be at um, at local services which uh, require a, a lower level of approval. So thinking about an infrastructure project in a specific state, um, the the approval processes for that, also things like um, you know, uh, environmental regulation, housing uh, development. Those there might be um, a desire for a particular policy within a particular state. Um, another big um, uh, area of, of um, discrepancies between states, which has been removed over the past 30 years, is in um, there's been a big agenda in uh, thinking about the qualifications for certain skills or trades within Australia. So having your um, your qualification in a certain profession in one state be recognised by um, you know the the body in in another state. So if you're a if you're a carpenter in one part of Australia, you can be a, a carpenter in another, and that also seems to make sense. So there is this um, you know this tension between uh, having greater um, greater powers at the central or national level, and then um, more decentralised um, uh, and and balance between jurisdictions in some others. So I think it really depends on the, the specific issue which we're talking about. Yeah, I think. Um I think the way Will's categorised it there, kind of in the, the two types of groups of, um, of issues where you can look at this, like one is around harmonisation of standards, which I completely agree it makes sense to have that at the federal level, like around corporations 
uh, regulations and things like that. Sorry, corporate regulations. And then there's the other, the second category is around public services. And I think we'd all agree that, you know, having those services delivered as close to the communities as possible by those communities is the best, is the best outcome because then they're more likely to be tailored to the, to the people who are going to be using them. And that is where I would say things have gone, uh, they've been too centralised in that regard. And I think that comes out most when you look at the funding arrangements for these things. So um, one thing that shocked me when we were working uh, for, you know, for the government back in the day was um, uh, this thing called the Coalition of Australian Governments, COAG. I'd never heard of that in my life, and I don't think most people have. And I was, I was completely shocked. I thought, what is this thing? Why is everyone spending so much time on it? And it was all to do with the funding arrangements um, between the federal government and the state governments around, uh, you know, taxation revenue coming from the GST and income tax. So a lot is collected at the federal level, but then they have the states and the federal government have an agreement to distribute the proceeds, um, and it goes towards, you know, delivering public services and infrastructure at the state level. So, um, yeah, that's, I, I would think that there needs to be more decentralisation on that front. Yeah, and actually I've just got those figures. I looked them up today. So it was, um, you know, states actually spend just over $300 billion, so 320 and $130 billion out of that expenditure comes from their own taxes. $54 billion comes from the GST and then $46 billion from those national partnerships agreements or those specific purpose payments, which is what everyone, uh, when we're working for the government back in the day, spent a lot of their time uh, working on, and uh, yours truly did as well on a specific <laughs> agreement. <laughs> um, but just to very quickly um, jump in there, because Will, you mentioned about the trade qualifications, and we still have this issue about them not being nationally recognised, where you know tra a tradie or someone who's in um, who has a, a skill can actually you know, move across a border and they're not be recognised in their qualifications. And this is an amazing stat that, um, you know, actually you mentioned railway gauge too, and Henry Parks, that was one of his big things too, so the father of federation. So, you know, his two issues were defence and the other one was a national railway gauge. So um, I thought that was an interesting point. And then there are apparently 24,000 different types of licences um, across the three levels of government. So I think it just brings home the magnitude and the scale of, of what we're dealing with. That people think of a licence and just think, oh, grief, it's my driver's licence or, you know, your open licence. But, um, you know, there's another 23,999 to consider. Um, but, Will, you wanted to say something. Sorry, I cut you off. Yeah, I just... Um, I think that um, we've sort of picked... It, we're picking up on the the movement towards there's a there's a natural desire it seems to have these to exploit these uh, efficiency gains by by harmonizing and, and moving things towards the the national level and that's kind of what we've done on the uh, particularly on the revenue side as you as you mentioned Sean and that you know, a lot of uh, income taxes are now levied at the the national level We've got a national goods and services tax of which the the revenue is redistributed back to the states, and so the we've got a an interesting change which is as the way the federation has evolved in more and more uh, you know the, these services are still uh, delivered by the state governments, but the funding for those services is reliant upon you know a, a national um, a national tax 
uh, regime which they don't directly uh, control. So that's, uh, that's I think, an interesting uh, situation in how the, the Federation has evolved over time and that you know, there's, been, there's been a couple of points in the 20th century where the, the states have been um, offered the chance to take back the income taxing power and have refused it from the um, from the the Commonwealth. So the, the I think the most recent time was in under the Fraser government in the in the 1970s. And um, perhaps this is because they you know understand the um, the benefits of this this national harmonisation, or they you know maybe they don't want this problem and don't want to face the the competition between the states I'm 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 not sure not too sure it's um it's it's quite but it yeah. is quite an interesting issue of the way the federation has evolved Yeah sure I think um as well there's some a couple of other instances um there was a really good discussion paper about this when the reform of the federation white paper came out and um yeah touched on those other times so you mentioned Fraser but apparently there's a constitutional conference in Melbourne in 34 where Robert Garron uh, came up with the phrase, keep, please keep the cow and do the milking for us. That was the consensus of, uh, of the actual conference at the time. So, and that, you know, that was decades, just decades, um, three decades after Federation. And it looks like in 1953, the states again, um, this is jumping into um, taxation power, but it was very much the same thing. So um, you do see this recurring theme that um, the states do get offered or have historically been offered a chance to, um, I guess, be more involved or to take that harmonisation away. But I do think, you know, Will, you mentioned something before in a previous answer that depends on the issue. And I think if the issue is popular, then that can also demand some centrality from things. Um, you know, I'm reminded here of, of um, you know, when, of competency. So, for example, in, in my living political memory, you know, when John Howard was at the peak of his political popularity had been in government a couple of terms, the GST had been introduced, there was a lot of overwhelming authority there and popularity. So you do, there was I think some residue there about, well look, there's a competency here and there's legitimacy and there's authority, we should let the federal government step in and run health, uh, we should let the federal government step in and run education, even though that's not, you know, constitutionally how it falls. But if you do see there's political expediency there and competency, that does drive that that push for centrality. Um, and then also, I think, you know, look, even, you know, back in the 1967 as well, that when um, the Indigenous um, referendum, as it's sort of been come to, come to be known, but um, that actually handed all um, powers over to the Commonwealth Government when it came to respect uh, uh, making laws for Aboriginals, which was to, until previously fully a state power. So that was an over, I think that's been the most popular or overwhelmingly popular referendum we've had in Australian history, and it certainly that has not been in the federal um, federal tone. It's been uh, very much uh, Canberra. Let's hand over responsibilities to Canberra. Let's not keep it in the states. And um, you know, I think you look as well back on that theme of um, centrality and political legitimacy and authority. Uh, you know, when Whitlam was at the height of his popularity in the 70s, um, again, you saw much, much um, more deliberate thrust by Canberra to get more involved in issues that it wasn't previously involved in. And, you know, you could make the case that um, Whitlam was just um, basically expediting his political mandate 
um, to have more central authority when it might not have been the intention of the of the constitution that that power is there to be exercised when it's politically expedient when you do have that uh, that authority there it could be argued yeah and i think that in following on from that there's and maybe it's interesting to take a step back to a point that you made earlier sean in thinking about the the different uh, different levels of government in that you know, often as Australians, you don't necessarily think about these distinctions between levels of government and who's responsible for what. And this is potentially part of the reason for the rise of uh, of issues up the up the the national level of um, up to the national level of government is the the rising expectations of of what government can do or should be responsible for and deliver. In thinking about more certain services. And that, uh, that that's what's motivating um, national politicians to want to become involved. And it's a very natural tendency uh, to want to become involved in issues and, and, and take responsibility and deliver for them, even though there might not be a history of the, the Commonwealth being involved in, in that certain topic. And I think you know, th- there's the, the same thing as the same trend is happening in the US with more and more uh, issues being the responsibility of the president and presidents taking them on as, as something which they're uh, concerned about. And uh, I think we can, we can see that in Australia as well, in, in the, the national government being um, uh, taking on issues and wanting to be more involved and tying uh, their funding to particular, um, particular types of delivery or, or policy outcomes. Uh, another issue, I think, is the, the, the blaming up in you were talking about of, of states um, of states uh, you know pointing the finger at the Commonwealth for for particular issues I think there's also you know there's also a mutual disdain uh, I, I sense from you know the Commonwealth of the states in in um, in not being able to get things done or, or deliver things as well and that the Commonwealth is is copying some of that that blame for for issues that are you know are the province of the states and um, you know there's uh, so there, I think there is that that sort of uh, disdain, and you know, Paul Keating said um, something along the lines of "never get between the premier and a bucket of money," and um, <laughs> so I think that, that's um, <clears throat> that's uh, that's you know an, an example of uh, yeah. of, of Commonwealth, um, you know, the Prime Minister having a, having a certain view of um, of state matters and how they're run. So it it goes both ways. Sure. Um, there's, there was something mentioned, you mentioned before, Will, about competitive federalism, and that's popped up a few times. But, Jordan, I wanted to get your views on, um, you know, this idea of states becoming competitive, because it becomes quite apparent that that can't be the case. Um, you know, when you look at the economies and the size and the scale of, say, New South Wales versus the NT or uh, uh, Tasmania, um, how is competitive federalism even possible if some states have such, uh, um, I guess their starting point isn't the same uh, when compared to some of the larger economies? Yeah, and that's, that's a good point. But I think you can look to places like Taiwan and Singapore and Hong Kong and, you, it, you know, their, their history shows that you don't need, you know, huge, um, huge resources and land to, to have a prosperous country. You can, it's a lot to do with the institutions and the, and the rules and, and the culture that develop in those areas. So, I mean, giving the states more freedom to uh, experiment with different forms of government and attract different industries, I think 
I think there's huge scope for that. I mean, the but I think that's impossible to do with the current um, uh, state federal government relations around tax revenue and 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 the and distributions. I mean, yeah, to me that's that's a huge a huge roadblock. So, um, but the idea of I mean, one thing I read in place of the Federalist Papers so <laughs> was a book called uh, Culture for Growth. Uh, by an economics historian called Joel Mokia. I think that's how you pronounce his name. And he, um, he the whole book is about the the period between the Enlightenment and the Industrial Revolution in Europe and trying to explain how um, the big question of economic history, which is why did the West surge ahead of, of everyone else in the world? Because if you had to place bets around 1500, you would have picked, you would have picked China in the East. They were more, more developed, more scientifically advanced, they had everything going for them, so you would have picked China, and yet the you know Europe seemed to surge ahead. And a lot of um, a lot of his book shows and draws on um, other he- economic historians to argue that a lot of it had to do with political fragmentation and the competition between states. So I think that's a great economic uh, great example of hi- from history as to why competitive federalism or even competition, healthy competition between states, can be really conducive to um, to prosperity. Yeah, sure. So, and that would imply too, um, with competition, that a power to tax for taxation, as you mentioned. So, um, with that, will what are your thoughts there in terms of you know you do have um, states do collect levies, states do have you know there is payroll tax, there are other, uh, your car registration, for example, when you pay that. There's other ways. Um, I think stamp duty goes to the state government or territory government. Um, there's States do collect revenue, but from the figures that I read out before, uh, not enough to actually quench their spending appetite. Um, this key question that keeps popping up again, and I think um, is probably the most prevalent one uh, that tumbles out of the discussion around federalism, is that should we give states the power for income taxation, which currently rests with the federal government? Your thoughts there? Yes, I think... Um... <clears throat> There's, um, there's, it's surprising. It seems like there's uh, surprisingly little competition between states in Australia, and that's potentially, um, you know, obviously there's they're very different economies and different populations, and um, you know, geography. These are all um, meaning that um, you know the the Australian states are very different, and um, it, but there doesn't seem to be too much of a push for um, either on the on the taxation side or the um, or the service delivery side, for um, you know uh, competition between the states in trying to you know attract businesses or, or individuals to those particular states. But I'd be interested if, if you um, if you both have a different sense to me on that. Uh, I guess may, maybe um, an issue which is causing this is that there's there's just a small number of states in Australia. We don't have the the 50 of the US, and so there's, there's kind of, you know, a limited choice of uh, how much people have based on their characteristics. You know, they're, they're less likely to move. So I think that, um, you know, from my perspective, the, um, you know, I think it would be having the harmonised corporations tax at a national level, I think, is, is sensible because that allows, that, that prevents companies just, you know, moving from one state to the other purely to exploit that, that taxation difference. And companies are uh, generally more mobile than individuals. So if we were going to 
have uh, different uh, levels of, of tax, it would be more sensible for that to happen on the income side. And you know, to me, it doesn't, I don't see there to be um, a reason why we wouldn't allow states, if they wanted to, the, um, the ability to you know, increase and levy their own state income tax. This happens in, in the US, in states like California and New York, which have generally higher state income taxes. And associated with that, they have uh, you know, higher services and a and, uh, high level of services which they provide to their public. And, and I, it, doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't seem to be a, a reason to me why you know, that wouldn't be too much of a, an issue for states if, in Australia if they wanted to be able to levy their own state income taxes. Yeah. Jordan, I, p- I presume that you agree there about um, the power for taxation because there's a local or decentralised argument there, um, you know, of states not only being competitive with each other, but if you give them the power for taxation, um, then that would create uh, more incentives to competition uh, by having a more persuasive tax regime. Uh, your thoughts there? I certainly like the idea of giving the states power to do that. I think that's where that power should reside. There should be more. I think the, the default position should be taxation is done at the state level, and it's you know kind of the reverse of the situation we have now. More of it is raised at the state level, and less is raised at the federal level. But I fear that if you gave the states power now to start raising income taxes, it'd be kind of like a, a double whammy. It'd be you know rising taxes on all fronts, and so I don't I don't quite know you know ha, you know how to achieve. I mean, this just gets to the subject of reform and how you get there, but. Um, I'm not quite sure how that sort of bargain happens, especially given how complicated the systems become now with the state-federal government relations. I think part of part of the reason why nothing has happened on the reform front as well is because Australia, Australia has been in boom times for what 25, 27 years. I mean, didn't we break the record for most years without a recession? We did. Um, so I think, yeah, I think when you've got a you know a growing pie, um, it it kind of makes the pressure on state-federal government relations. It kind of you know puts it at ease, but I think if we went through some tough times and some state governments really started struggling for revenue, then these questions would really come to the fore. And I think someone like Western Australia would you know start to realise that they're funding um, a lot of the other states' profligacy. So you know I'd like to see maybe them threaten threaten to secede from the federation. I think that might be a, a catalyst for reform. <laughs> but you know maybe that's maybe that's my excessive libertarian streak coming I, out. I knew you'd go there, Jordan. You had to. <laughs> I think um, you know one thing that's uh, that is interesting about this is um, we we do have a system of um, of fiscal equalisation between the between the states, and so this is the idea that the the federal government should provide enough resources to state governments to deliver some minimum level of of services uh, at the state level, and and that um, you know that that seems sensible, and partly. I think this is also you could also think about this as some sort of insurance or risk sharing mechanism because you know because the states of different economies that you know they're going to be going up and down at different times and that it, there's some benefit to the commonwealth you know being able to support some minimum level of services for um, members of those of those states but I I think also you know Jordan that it doesn't seem you're thinking about the states having power to levy um, income taxes then. You could, I mean, you could, you could also think about the situation of them having negative income taxes at the state level and trying to attract people, right? So, um, and you know, associated with that, a lower level of, a lower level of 
um, services being provided by the, the state government in that, in that particular jurisdiction. So that's also something which could, the other side of the coin, which could happen. It would just take, you know, this, this sort of debate to be had at the state level about what sort of uh, combination of uh, tax levels and um, government spending do we want in that particular jurisdiction. Sure. Um, and, I mean, I do think as well, to, to use a sort of historical example, but maybe that, you know, you look back at historically when there's been boom times, um, you know, it wasn't just uh, Victoria that had a gold rush. Um, it, it was also Queensland as well had a, had a gold rush. Um, and then also, you know, people look at that as recent times of, you know, Jordan, you mentioned WA and just how much money they've made over resources and how they have to basically bankroll through equalisation, um, other less um, productive um, states and territories as well. Um, you know, like there's a, I think regardless of the taxation regime or the level of competition, people still move, you know, people still adapt, are adaptable. Um, people still, you know, you look back and, um, you know, remember when the mining boom was ending a few years ago or was sort of on its dip from what it used to be, um, that there was all this worry about what are people going to do and you know people adapt and people move around states and they, they're competitive in their own way it doesn't sort of need a I guess a you know a grand design or some sort of um, grand bargain there so there's probably you know I do see in terms of the future things potentially just muddling on here um, without any reform serious reform taking place and as you say um, you know Jordan about you know, we've had this 25, 27 years of growth now where there hasn't been the uh, the driver or that impetus to actually do anything about this. Um, and look, I do think that that's probably, you know, I, I do sense in the future here that things can potentially just muddle on here without any clear or compelling case for reform. Um, I just want to get your thoughts, gents, on uh, the future of Australian Federation and what some of your thoughts are around that. Maybe, Jordan, I'll start with yourself. Um well, one thing I forgot to mention at the beginning, like key features of the Federation, which I think people don't realise, one, just to tie into the end here, is that the, there's actually provision in the Constitution, there was provision made for New Zealand to become um, a member, to become one of, the, one of the states, and they decided not to. And I had a quick look today because I was curious as to why, why they decided not to participate. And apparently the mm. representatives that were sent um, were too concerned that it was it was more about creating a very strong central uh, Australia rather than a, a, a loose union of um, equal states. And so they decided to pack their bags and go home and New Zealand never joined. But I think that's a really interesting example of how the, the balance is so crucial because, I mean, the US was able to get how many states to go and participate in their experiment. Maybe if we managed to get New Zealand on board, we'd be in a different position today. And I think it all comes down to that that moment at the beginning of um, what what James Buchanan would call the constitutional choice. How did the parties, um, you know, contractually agree to make, you know, how did they come to the necessary trade-offs so that they were all happy and all decided to join? And it ties in with the with the work of Eleanor Ostrom, the, the first lady to win the uh, the Nobel Prize in Economics. She did a lot of work around common pool resources, and it was uh, her work was inspired by James Buchanan and. Um, you know, it was all around showing that these that communities are better at coming up with their own rules and institutional structures from the ground up. And it was she was describing that constitutional choice. So 
you know, when whether uh, you know the existing states can come up with a new uh, forum to make that constitutional choice. Like, I don't see any other opportunity or any other way that we can really reform things as they are. It's too complicated. There's a, you know, there's sort of like a, a self-fulfilling momentum to the existing system as it is, and without you know a nation, uh, one of the states willing to secede, or you know, a grand constitutional convention, which I don't see how that would come up. Yeah, it's very hard to see any reform. I kind of agree with you, Sean, that things will just kind of muddle on as they are. Yeah, and look, just to, you know, there's a potential to absorb New Zealand, but then also it was envisaged, I think it was um, someone like Samuel Griffith that in the 1890s just envisaged about actually creating new states or, you know, it was envisaged that Queensland could potentially be carved into three more states. And that's something that I'm seeing a lot more from people about, um, you know, like in terms of, arresting some um, dysfunction is actually breaking somewhere like, you know, creating a state for northern Queensland um, we, we, and then accompanying that too would be this idea of, um, of taxation powers as well. Um, but Will, what are your thoughts there on um, the future of federation in Australia? Well, I think that it's, um, it's difficult to see drastic you know, drastic changes happening to the Australian constitution as it's, as it's written. And part of this is that there's a really high bar for change in the, in the federation model. We've only seen, I think, I think, eight of 44 referenda be successful in Australia. And this is because you know, it takes the, the majority in the majority of states as well as the majority of voters overall. So it, there needs to be a, you know, a broad uh, acceptance and an agreement for some sort of change to be made. And that's the that's the sort of written side, and at the same time, there's the how the how the um, the institutions evolve outside of that, which is uh, those unwritten rules and how the the federation operates within that, and that's that's where we've seen the big changes over the uh, through the 20th century, and I think that you know that's that's potentially likely to happen, and that um, you know there'll be some. Um, you know, continued discussion and agreement between states on particular issues and um, progress on um, on harmonising or not particular things. I think that's that's okay. Uh, one thing that is, it makes it more of a challenge to be able to undertake these sort of reforms, as as with Howard on you know implementing a, a national GST, and that you need a lot of a lot of revenue and good economic times to be able to do that. And in some ways, you know, the, the strong economic performance is the moment when you want to undertake these sort of reforms. But at the same time, it's like there's less impetus to do that because there's less of a problem, it seems, to, to people. Things are going well. So, so that's, um, there's a bit of, a, a bit of a, an interesting tension there, and it, it takes a sort of a lot of um, long-term vision and thinking, which is, which is very difficult in the political climate, which we talked about in the in the in the previous uh, podcast. There's also a, uh, an idea that um, I think that you know, and when we saw this a, a little bit around the the Federation White Paper a few, initiative a few years ago, which which um, didn't end up um, you know progressing, was that we if we can just agree on the roles and responsibilities between the Commonwealth and the states, then we'll be we'll be okay. But achieving that uh, is would be very difficult to do in in practice. But then, um, in, sorry, in in writing those sort of rules. But then, how they're also implemented in practice. You know, sticking to just agreeing on these certain roles and these responsibilities being in uh, in different levels. Uh, that also strikes me as 
really difficult. So I guess, um, you know, I, I'm not, um, you know, I don't sense that there's huge changes to the Australian uh, constitutional model going forward. But, um, you know, maybe that's not such a bad thing if it's working okay at the moment. Um, and that we'll, we'll keep doing these, you know, certain policy issues uh, when they become a priority, be, those discussions being had between the Commonwealth and the states. Can I just add, I think both of you made really interesting points, like will the idea of, you know, the federal and state governments just kind of resolving the problems they have really easily is kind of a bit far-fetched to imagine that's going to happen. It's, I mean, all the incentives are there, and it's such a complicated matter. So, yeah, you know, it seems a bit foolish to hold out hope for that. And, Sean, your point about, you know, people in Queensland have even talked about, you know, well, historically and even today, like I've noticed the cultural divide between North and South Queensland. I, th I really think that's the only way that these things can change is the idea of a portion of the population seceding from, uh, from the Federation. And I think, I mean, that sounds ridiculous, I know, but it, and it's, it was, I don't think it was as far-fetched back, you know, two, three hundred years ago, like, um, you know, the Civil War was in the US was pretty much the south, the southern states trying to secede. And I think the Civil War kind of ended the conversation of whether, you know, states, nations could secede from, a, from the Federation. Ireland, I think, you know, achieving independence is probably another one. But I think that's really the only, only way that you can, it's an ugly way, but I think that's the only way that these things really get reformed and you, get, you can stimulate competition again, is that someone actually has to have the guts to, to really uh, say bye-bye. Yeah, and um, that's a really good point um, because actually, you know, and that was something I was really shocked and startled by, um, you know, reading about, you know, Samuel Griffith about this escape clause potentially, you know, one of the framers of, the, of our constitution about, you know, look, having this, this idea that there could be an escape hatch in the future somewhere. Um, and, yeah, look, I think that's a, that's a really good point. You know, one of the things actually is around... I wanted to get your thoughts, Jordan, on is actually costs and for the future, um, because I looked this up and uh, they're not current costs at all. But back in 2002, the costs of running the Commonwealth was apparently estimated at 40 billion. So um, that means you know running state and territory governments, cost of Commonwealth of interacting with the states, um, and then compliance cost to business. So that actually seems quite a conservative figure. But 40 billion back in 2002. Um, you know, with this, with a, if a future, you know, what we do to have succession or anything like that, do you think that cost would, would come down? Well, I think the one example that gets thrown up is um, that the Department of Health and Education at the federal level employs, you know, how many thousands of people, yet they don't run a single hospital or school. And I think that's kind of an example of what you're getting at, like the, the costs of mm -hmm. the current system have become exorbitant. So, you know, if, I think, yeah, in, in, inherently or intuitively you'd think that if a a portion, a state was able to secede, they would be able to, you know, cut out those costs and start afresh. And I think that's part of the, the same sort of um, reasoning that's given behind Brexit as well. And so, you know, we can cut all the, the costs of compliance with um, with Brussels and the EU, although let's not go there because I don't, I don't know too much else about the, the situation there. A lot of the material was that we could build a, you know, that UKIP was using, for example, you could build a new hospital each day. I think the amount of money that was being sent to Brussels or something like that, to that effect. Yeah, but I yeah. think your point about the costs building up is, is an example of like the legacy, like the, the rot that's kind of built into the legacy systems. I mean, 
That's this is some uh, some radical points that have uh, come up here. But I guess I'd um, uh, I'd think about well, you know, a state could make that threat, but it would be a huge hit to their economy immediately. They'd have to if they were going to leave the Australian dollar and establish the um, you know a North Queensland dollar or Western Australian dollar. That's um, you know going to going to have some initial hit, and that's why you see. Um, Difficulty and countries resisting leaving the euro within the within the euro area, like Greece and and Italy. I know the uh, the UK's um, you know exiting the, the European Union, but there's going to be this uh, this hit to their economy in the in the long run, and so that's what the you know the, the discussions would be focusing on too in in them making that threat. I, I get your point. I get your point, Will. That it is a, these are radical ideas, and you know, no one's going to be talking about this apart from us. But I, I still think it's interesting to consider, and also to look historically. Like you know, the idea of the of the American colonies um, seceding from the British Empire and starting their own nation that it would have seemed incredibly radical at the time, and yet it paid off, and it paid off mm-hmm. in spades, like the most powerful nation in the world. So I think. Yeah, sure. You, you you can say it's radical, but I think that doesn't mean necessarily it's a bad idea. It just means it's 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 different. <laughs> yeah, sure. And you know, look, I think my own my own idea on the future of the Commonwealth is that you know it's not so much a muddle through, but it's that we can. There is still so much space for reform and getting what we've got at the, at the moment um, right. Um, and you know, you look. I was you know watching. Um, Tony Shepherd being interviewed, who wrote the Shepherd Review, and you know he says there's still a lot of space for reform um, about you know how we spend money, you know how the Commonwealth spends money, and especially you know you look for example in the Indigenous sector and the outcomes there and scrutiny and accountability. That's just one example, of course, of you know of many. But um, you know I think it's interesting too. Um, I saw this stat today or of an old article that I read that it was. It only took 358 pages of legislation over two years to actually bring the colonies uh, together and to federate. But, you know, in 2006, um, there was 6,786 pages of legislation. Uh, So I think there's, you know, if you're a small government person like I am, um, then there's still a lot of work to be done in terms of, um, you know, limiting um, red tape, um, harmonising regulations, for example, talked a little bit about... um, you know, looking at, uh, to de-bureaucratise things. Um, there's a lot of a lot of reform that still needs to take place, and I think you know, looking at the maybe um, you know succession potentially, or um, you know, this idea of income uh, taxation powers to states. It's you know, it's not going to be the silver bullet that we want it to be, and I think federalism is and it is you know like. It can be an index patient for health, education, a lot of other sectors as well. Um, but at the same time, there's still a lot to sort out, um, you know, in terms of how we spend money at the Commonwealth level, how states conduct their business too. Um, and those reforms need to be looked at as well. And we just can't lose sight of those things that we can take stewardship of right now uh, versus um, just waiting for a big bang reform to come along and take place. That would be my... That's my sort of... Um, take on the future of federalism in Australia. Um, look, gents, I think that actually exhausts our time, and this has been a long one, um, but I really just want to thank you guys because this has been a tricky issue, and I hope listeners have been able to um, absorb uh, some of that. 
um, some of those points. And um, this episode was actually so long I thought about splitting in two, but I think we've done pretty well to keep things um, on track. And uh, Will and Jordan, is there anything you want to add uh, to the discussion or just leave listeners to um, think about or um, or anything that they can read? Um, I, you know, we can put in the show notes or you just want to mention. Um, I... I would recommend everyone pick up a copy of the Australian Constitution and have a read. I think you'd be surprised what's in there. I think, um, you know, it's such an important document and we don't talk about it enough. And I think um, it would be just, a, it's an interesting place to start. Yeah, I'd also agree. I think, um, you know, that was, it was so interesting going back and, and reading that in preparation for this uh, discussion. And yeah, so I think that's, that's also, an, uh, it's quite interesting. The, it's, it is quite short for, uh, um, such a, an important document, and, um, and has, has really informed um, Australia, you know, then and now. And I think that's 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 quite interesting. So um, I'd agree on that. And you know, this, these sort of discussions about the the shape of Australia and, and how the institutional makeup are, are really important to the lives of lives of Australians. Yep, spot on. And um, I do think you can get. Um, well, you definitely can. I've got a copy of um, a pocket-sized constitution. So. We, we all have no excuse um, to, to carry them around and um, berate our... We can berate our... Um, I was going to say congressmen with them, as they do in the US, uh, but um, <laughs> our members of parliament and senators and so forth. But uh, Jordan from Melbourne and Will uh, from Europe, let's just say, thanks very much for joining <laughs> us, gents. This has been a great discussion and uh, looking forward to having you guys on again soon. Pleasure, Sean. Thanks for having me. Really enjoyed it. Thank you very much, listeners. That wraps up episode 14 of the Jacobs podcast on federalism. A reminder to please get in touch if you have any ideas for future episodes. The podcast is now available on Spotify. uh, So if you listen on that platform, I encourage you to rate and write a review and continue listening on Apple Podcasts as well. Thank you very much. And until next time. (laughs) 